You are now listening to Hack My Age, the show that brings you guests with information on how to make yourself hard to kill and help you live to 100 and beyond in good condition. I'm your host, Zora Benamou, a digital nomad currently stuck in Spain, certified sports nutrition coach and master student of gerontology at USC. I am the creator of the Longevity Master Plan, an online program to slow aging and author of the cookbook, Eating for Longevity. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and leave a review to help others find us too. Welcome to the Hack My Age podcast and Zoom call. Today we have Maria Ashna and she is a neuroscience researcher, educator, actor, and writer specializing in the neuroscience of creativity. Today's talk will be about 45 minutes of talking about how creativity is impacting an aging brain. She's going to give us some great ideas. And Maria, she has a master's degree in neuroimaging and informatics from USC. Woohoo, another Trojan. We have a couple of Trojans in the house. <laughs> and, um, and she also has a master's in information systems and technology. She studied neuroscience and theater for her undergraduate degree and also trained at Stanislavski Summer Institute. This is a joint advanced theater training program with the American Rep Theater at Harvard University and the Moscow Art Theater School. Maria has worked in both research and tech, and she's currently an instructor at USC. I am so excited to introduce you to Maria because I met her recently during my first class of my master's program in gerontology at USC and I was totally impressed by her knowledge of the brain. She gave a great talk on on, um, Alzheimer's dementia and how the brain works but I'm also fascinated by her totally contrary background in art and theater. These are also surprisingly complementary which she's going to share with us now um, the arts and the brain. So without further ado, welcome, Maria. Thank you, Zora. Thank you for that extremely warm and generous welcome. I'm very excited to be here and talk about how creativity is good for your brain and how creativity doesn't just belong to the domain of, you know, musicians or artists or dancers or chefs or actors. You know, I really believe and science actually is showing that Finally, creativity is something everyone can learn. Everyone can learn to live a creative life. And, you know, creativity, when we think of creativity or creative jobs, you know, people tend to have this perception in society that, oh, you know, arts, they're just, you know, artsy fartsy stuff. It's not a quote unquote serious job or something. But the thing is, creativity, again, isn't just in the domain of those fields. Creativity can help you be productive in your daily life whether you are a physical trainer or whether you are a manager at your job or whether you're trying to just make sure your brain is healthy, creativity can help you achieve those things. So I'm just excited to talk about the benefits of being creative. And I'll also give some tips on how to live a creative life. Interesting. Yes. Now, it seems to me when we're kids, we are naturally creative. Then we kind of lose it as we get adult, become adults. And then sometimes we think, well, you know, we may not step into sort of an uncomfortable situation where we need to be creative. From what I learned in our, in our course is that actually there's amazing benefits that happen when you do force yourself to be creative 
and when I'm thinking about creativity, I'm not, I'm, I'm, you know, it's, it can be, to me, it seems more like it's a challenge, right? It's a, it's something that, and anything that makes your brain hurt a little bit to me seems to be able to bring that plasticity or that build new brain neurons or something. And I want you to explain a little bit what's happening with the brain and when people do different things in terms of could be dance or theater or problem solving, like you said, games, you know, having to like play video games, even we learned was was quite amazing for the brain. What's going on there? You know, that's a great question, Zora. So I'm glad you brought up the concept of plasticity. So what plasticity means is something that is plastic or something that changes based on your experience, based on activities you're doing. And, you know, back in the day, people used to have this very set in stone view of the brain that, you know, the brain you have, the brain God is what you've got. It doesn't change. It's just going to be there until you die. However, recent research is constantly showing us that our brains are incredibly plastic, uh, no matter what age you are. And plasticity, your brain changes and grows and prunes its neuronal connections based on many kinds of activities that you're doing. If you are learning to play an instrument, guess what? Your brain is going through plasticity. If you're learning to move your body in a new way, whether it's by dance or weight training or running or just, you know, things that you have not done before, your brain is going through plasticity. Conversely, your brain is also going through plasticity based on your circumstances. For example, right now, every one of us is under some type of duress, some more than others because of the pandemic. Your brain is definitely going through some kind of plasticity right now as well in terms of your coping skills. If If you were not an anxious person before, it's not surprising if you have found yourself to be a bit more anxious, because guess what? The emotional regulation centers in our brain are probably going through plasticity right now. The way you would cope with things last year is most likely a lot of us are coping with stuff very differently right now. So these are all examples of plasticity and what happens to your brain when it's changing and connecting. Think of your brain as this kind of ever-present living Play-Doh, I want to say, you know, it's not this static stone. It's, it's something that's this really fun, I don't want to use the word blob, because blob is just a too simplistic word for the brain. The brain is much more beautiful than a blob. But it's ever present, this biome, this clay biome that's changing shape, that's constantly sort of taking in information and processing out information. So your brain is your brain is always plastic. So when you talk about what happens to our brain, when we are engaging in creative activities, there's always room for more research and research definitely needs to happen more. But there is emerging research that when you engage in, say, learning musical instruments, you have improvements in your motor coordination in your fingers, say, if you're learning to play piano or guitar. You can also have some people who garden. Gardening, some people might not think is a creative activity, but gardening can be extremely therapeutic. Gardening also requires creativity skills 
problem solving skills. So, you know, for example, if you're trying to figure out how to grow a little herb garden, for example, you are engaging in strengthening your problem solving skills, your decision making pathways, you're trying to figure out different ways of making sure your little herb garden grows better. For example, if you're learning how to dance, how to move your body, there's definitely some studies, of course, more needs to be done always, where improvements in your motor coordination and your balance centers in your brain, there's been some studies that are exploring that. So there's numerous benefits that are happening. But I think one of the biggest benefits that happens when you engage in creative activities is you're building something called a cognitive reserve. Now, cognitive reserve is something that is incredibly important and actually has been shown to stave off cognitive, what people call, say, a brain fog. And uh, it's lessening your chances of getting dementia. Now, again, there's no guarantee get some kind of brain impairment purely out of bad luck. But Mm -hmm. cognitive reserve enables you to sort of cushion any kind of blows, any kind of brain pathologies that you might have. And what cognitive reserve means is think of it as you're storing up food, you're building up your own food pantry. If you lose some cans of bean or some bags of rice or pasta if, uh, due to some weird calamity, you still have some reserve food on hand somewhere maybe in another part of your pantry, in another part of your kitchen, or maybe your garage. So think of it that way. Cognitive reserve helps you have more extra neuronal connections so that just in case you have some kind of brain injury, you still have your reserve, your cognitive reserve to kind of uh, fall back on. Now, cognitive reserve has been shown before primarily in terms of people who are always constantly learning and growing. It has been historically seen as people who have more education, but education doesn't necessarily have to mean, you know, you're getting lots and lots of graduate degrees. Education and learning and growing can happen in many kinds of, say, creative activities. You're learning how to paint. You're learning something complex, perceived complexity. You are learning how to hone your memorization skills by learning poetry. Some actors do that as a way to make sure they always on top of learning their lines, or you're learning to play a musical instrument. All of these activities help you build a cognitive reserve. Are you able to tap into this cognitive reserve when you need it? You said when you have a brain injury, but are there any other situations where you kind of need to turn up the juice and go, okay, I got to get into the reserve? (laughs) (laughs) That is a really great question. And, you know, we need to do a lot more research on how to, it's almost like exercising, you know, when you, when you do certain kinds of physical exercises, you have, you build more muscle eventually, Mm -hmm. but how to tap into specific muscles We don't really do that. You know, we don't really think about, oh, I have to use my deltoids right now. I have to use my glutes right now. You just do it. Mm -hmm. So I don't think at this point there's a way to pinpoint, okay, right now I'm on my normal reserve and I need to tap in my cognitive reserve. I don't think it's separate that way. It's all all in the same place. Mm -hmm. But I think just to differentiate, just to make it understandable to us humans, I think that's happening on a very cellular level 
very molecular cellular level, you know, mm-hmm. just for us to understand the idea of cognitive reserve, it is still all in your brain. It's just that imagine it's an interstate freeway. If one part of the freeway shut down, you have a bunch of other connected paths to go on. I would sort of picture a cognitive reserve in that sense, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. I'm a dancer. So when I go to a class and you start a new dance or new choreography and you're just all over the place, like your hands are like, you don't know what you're doing. (laughs) And then by the end of the class, you've got it. You've got the choreography and you're doing this. And so I find I can actually feel this brain connections happening from, from like start of the class, the end of the class, you're like, Oh, wow. I couldn't do this before. And you could literally, and and when you're trying to remember the moves, like your brain kind of hurts. You're like, okay, this next, 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 next step. It, it, and then to- it, should, it should feel fun. <laughs> yes, but in the beginning, and actually I had left six years of dancing and I went back and I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm so bad. But I knew that every time I went to the class, I would yeah. pick things up faster and faster. Exactly. And then she really throws us a curveball. At the end of the class, she tells us to do everything on the opposite side. Oh my right? goodness. Wow, that's a great exercise. <laughs> it is such a great exercise because you're like, ah, I got this. So I, you know, you're all proud that your brain is now working, but then she just takes it away in a second because you have to do the other side. But this is where I can really feel, I literally like feel like my brain is activated. I'm dancing. Of course, I'm using my physical body, but this is where I see the brain. But what's what's going on in there? Like, and how is that any better in terms of the brain than say painting? Or is there any activities that are better for the brain than the other? You know, you're asking so many great questions. Oh, my goodness. So the first thing when you're talking about going to the dance class, learning those new dance moves. So there's a part of our brain and right in the back of our brain called the cerebellum. So the cerebellum is almost known as the little brain because the cerebellum is actually in charge of learning and correcting your movements that you're making. It can be any movements. It can be as simple as just us walking or learning balance or throwing a ball into a target or something as complex as dancing. Every time our body is sort of adjusting and moving and reorienting itself, our cerebellum is also helping us coordinate. There's also another system in our brain, the basal ganglia. It's kind of in the in the middle, right in the middle of our brain, sort of, but that's also involved in motor movements and motor learning and motor connections. For example, when we actually see patients who have Parkinson's, there have been institutions that are actually incorporating dance movements or actually just physical balance movements, a bit similar to what you might learn in class, although not as complex, that can actually help the motor parts of our brain to kind of learn, engage those slow movements so that a person who has Parkinson's can improve slightly in the way they move. The things that you're talking about, stuff that you're learning in dance class, why in the beginning, you know, you feel like, oh my gosh, I'm all over the place. But at the end, you kind of get the hang of it. It's because your cerebellum and your basal ganglia, they're all kind of working in concert. And again, I'm speaking in very, very simplistic terms. These are all happening. There's so many other pathways involved when these things, our brain is learning about them. But these are the two big parts of our brain that are involved in making 
sure that we are coordinated in space, that I guess also our hippocampus. Hippocampus now is primarily the memory center of our brain that is also involved in sort of learning, you know, where where we are, you know, when we're dancing. And the cerebellum is also involved in sort of our balance, what is called the vestibular system, making sure that we're not wobbling and falling off, making sure that, okay, I'm standing here, I need to put my arms wide this way. There are all these things that are going on in your brain. I know you've mentioned that you're, you're feeling lots of stuff happening because lots of stuff is happening when you're learning a new dance. And then when you're trying to do it backwards again. Hey. I'm butting in for a quick second. If you enjoy the content brought to you in this podcast, consider supporting Hack My Age by becoming a patron on patreon.com. This is where you can drop a tip or become a member for the price of a coffee. Members get special material, free coaching, and private Zoom calls. Join us by going to patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Hack My Age. Thanks for your support. Now let's get back to the podcast. Now to go back on your last question, which of these is beneficial for your brain? So now there isn't really anything that's number one or number two or number three. My take is they're all beneficial for a brain. They really all serve a purpose in contributing to your cognitive reserve. They really all contribute to some way, shape or form your brain health. It could be your actual, your physical parts of your brain as a, and also the emotional part of your brain. Engaging in any kind of activity, any kind of creative activity. Like I mentioned before, it strengthens the decision-making parts of your brain. And that is important because that also helps in emotion regulation of our brain. Amygdala is a part of our brain that is responsible for our emotions. It's also called the rage and fear system. So when we have strong decision-making pathways, our amygdala is in better, it's in better shape relatively speaking. That's why when we feel frazzled, but we do something that can be creative, like mm-hmm. puzzle solving or movement or painting something, all these kinds of wonderful things happen. Wow. So yeah, I know that was a big, long answer to your question. So, Well, I heard dance is better. So I'm okay. doing... <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> I, I play the guitar, so I, I have to go with music. I'm biased, but of course. No, I know. One study that we read in our class was very interesting because it talked about theater and acting and how this is actually building new brain neurons and connections. And it was because they said that the performance aspect when you are actually on stage you have this fight or flight I guess stress reaction and so it's that mild stress that had built resilience and then sort of it sounded like it had like a hormetic effect where you're just becoming more resilient and it wasn't like if we were stressed like that all day it would be negative but in in a mild dose it was actually really really beneficial for the brain and I can't remember exactly what the study I should have have pulled this out but it was one of our readings and and I thought that was fascinating because I, I don't know if you could get that with I don't know some other creative activity just it's painting at home and having to be creative is you're you're not you don't have that performance aspect or that little stress unless you're doing an exhibition and you're worried about people I have some theories on this I think especially when it comes to the performance whether you're performing a play in front of people 
or whether you're playing a musical instrument in front, in front of people or dancing in front of people. I think what you're talking about is called eustress. There's the good, quote unquote, good stress and quote unquote, the bad stress. But my theory with the performance aspect of this is a little bit different in that I think it is acting or performing of any kind it's different in, you're correct that it's in some ways it's different than you painting home by yourself. But on the other hand, you both are in this thing called the state of flow. You enjoy, you're, you're performing, you're in this state of flow. It's just you and the audience and you're speaking. If you're giving a big speech, people feel the same thing. If you're painting something, if you're creating something, it's just you and your creation, you know? So in that regard, it actually is the same. The effects of whatever you're feeling is exactly the same. Now the you stress thing, I would say you observe that for a lot of people when it comes to exercise, because when you do kind of high intensity training, you will have body is under stress, especially if you haven't done high intensity training. But after a while, for, for some people, for a lot of people, I guess, some people, it doesn't have that effect. Me, I'm raising my hand right now. For many people, you know, after a while, that level of stress, your body gets used to it and builds muscle and blah, 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 all of that happens. Mm -hmm. But I would say for me, the big part of any kind of creative endeavor where you're in that state of flow, where you you start to enjoy yourself, or you're tapping into your cognitive reserve or building your cognitive reserve is if you enjoy it, if you enjoy the activity. Now, if I had to dance, go to dance class and do it, I, I may not have that kind of a feeling that you were having <laughs> um, and vice versa. I don't know if you were out there playing a violin. I don't know if you might enjoy it. So I think the takeaway from it is the best activity, the best creative activity is one that you enjoy, you really enjoy. If you enjoy dancing, you enjoy dancing. If you enjoy being in front of people and speaking and giving speeches, that's, or, you know, acting, that's what you should do. If you enjoy playing musical instrument, you should do that. Don't do it because somebody somewhere told you, oh, this is the, this will guarantee you a cognitive reserve. So what if there's somebody just says, you know, I don't care about creativity and I don't need it, but yet what's going to happen to their brain if they don't use this creative aspect? Mm, very good question. So it's plastic I, go the other way. <laughs> say that again. <laughs> you said it's plastic. So it could maybe go the other way. Well, again, it depends on the individual. If, if they're not engaging in learning anything, it could be anything. If, if they're not, it's the, the same thing. Rot and die. <laughs> Wow, it got dark really quickly, but I hate to use this term, use it or lose it. But it again, we're using our brain all the time, obviously. But I would Not say... Use your brain more. Yes, of course. Use... Use your brain even more, people. Your brain is very complex and can handle it. Allow and celebrate its complexity. So I would say to somebody who says that creativity is not important or creativity is something that just belongs to those artsy, hippy-dippy people, I will just tell them, if you are a manager in a job and you have a problem to solve, how do you solve it? You, you solve it by being creative. Mm -hmm. That's also creativity. If you are trying to meal prep for your kids, 
I'm during a pandemic. How do you do that? You use creativity. Believe it or not, you are using some form of creative thinking, mm-hmm. some form of divergent thinking to solve that problem. If you feel like, oh, I can't get anything done. I'm not a productive person. What, what can I do? I'm reading all these blogs about how to be productive. It's not working for me. Well, maybe you're not being creative enough, or maybe you need to be a better person problem solver. And how do you become a better problem solver? By creativity. The reason a lot of companies, a lot of places, they care a little less about the degree and are starting, starting, I would say, I wouldn't say a blanket statement like, oh, they're all on board the creativity train. They're looking for creative individuals because creative people can, they actually know how to roll with the punches. They know how to problem solve a little bit better, dare I say, just because they're engaging when you're creative, you're engaging in something called divergent thinking. Now, what is divergent thinking? Divergent thinking is think of it as looking through a kaleidoscope. You're looking down the same tunnel, but when you twist and turn the kaleidoscope, you're seeing different pictures. And that is exactly what divergent thinking means. You're looking at the same problem in different ways, in different perspectives. And because of that, you're able to see something in a whole new light. Mm -hmm. And divergent thinking and cognitive reserve and creativity, they all go hand in hand. So of course, it is wonderful to engage and learn and grow and using arts, you know, it is absolutely beautiful and wonderful. It's, it makes your life even more enriching. But if you're also if you're at a job, or if you're trying to solve everyday problems, guess what creativity is also excruciatingly important. If you don't think of yourself as an artistic person, if you think that, oh, I can't tell a C sharp from an F chord, you know, whatever it is, you can't tell, that doesn't matter. Um, You can apply creative thinking to your everyday life. So creativity is definitely important to you as well. What would you recommend people to how to get started with being creative and how often should they practice this creativity to start seeing some benefits in the brain? Oh, man. So that, again, is the million billion dollar question. Again, because these types of things are something we call in science longitudinal, there haven't yet been as many studies. And again, I advocate that there definitely is tons and tons of room to do research in this field where observing, seeing how creativity can benefit someone longitudinally, observing them for year after year. So there's no sort of XYZ definitive answer to that question. You know, oh, if you practice five years of creativity equals six more years of optimal brain health. We're not there yet in that kind of a quantitative level, but my advice is it's never too late to start. If you think that, oh man, I shouldn't have given up those piano lessons when I was 10, it's too late for me. No, it's never too late. It really never is too late to engage in something creative. It really isn't. But the key is to be consistent with it And the key is to find something that you enjoy. As I mentioned before, if you're not a natural dancer, don't torture yourself by going to dance class. Or if you feel like you don't have good pitch and you know, you prefer listening to music as opposed to playing it, it's totally fine to find something else. If you believe that your creativity can best come out if you make something, if you sculpt something, if you make something out of wood, go for it. So it's never too late to start. So that's what I have to say about that. 
Would you say that problem solving, like math, like doing algebra or learning a language is a creative uh, endeavor? You know, thank you for mentioning that. Definitely, definitely. Learning a language is a whole other topic, but definitely learning a language is definitely something that will definitely help you build more cognitive reserve. And, you know, whenever people want to learn languages, I hate it when they say, oh, it's best when you learn when you're younger. Uh, sure, it is quote unquote, easier to catch up, have the chance to be multilingual. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't learn a new language or start learning a new language when you are older. I think learning languages is definitely a great way to build your cognitive reserve. And creativity wise, you know, yeah, I mean, it can help you in in many ways. Language learning is just great in terms of, you know, it will help you communicate with more people than you have before. It can help you communicate with people across the the globe. It can help you. Well, right now, I guess travel is not the best thing to do. But when the pandemic is over, you can it can allow you to engage in what I call having a creative mindset, because it, it makes you comfortable to go to a new culture, new place, practice your language learning skills. And I think you start to open up more it's just curious to know what effects on the brain or maybe it's the pathways if they're the same. Language is very often about memorizing and creativity is coming up with something new. So to me, it seems like it would be almost different. I mean, I know that learning a language, I mean, when you look at the super centenarians or, you know, when you look at super agers, those people who are, those, those are the people actually, it's not even super centenarian, the super agers are people who are usually in their 70s, 80s, 90s, and they're sharp as a tack. They just, there's no skip to their beat and they are grasping ideas very quickly. And they say that it's not pseudocoups that these people are doing, not doing puzzles and crosswords. That's not heavy lifting. It's they need to do the heavy lifting. And these people appear to be doing things that hurt, like doing a math problem, right? And your brain hurts because you're trying to solve this problem. So I understand that that's great for the brain, but I'm just wondering if it's different than being creative. You know, yes and no, just because you're you're right, you're correct that I don't I want to go away from the brain hurting and run more put on brain enriching, you know. <laughs> um we, we don't want to get sound like like being creative. It's just like anything. For some people or others, depending on what activity you want to learn or engage in, uh, depending on how you learn, uh yeah, there there there's definitely going to be some kind of a learning curve. But I have to say, just it shouldn't hurt. It should be more enriching. Yeah, um, like, like for example, when I was learning Chinese, I remember I this I learned this when I was learning Chinese that when you're trying to come up with the word, the teacher asks me, "How do you say I don't know bread in Chinese?" And mm-hmm. and I say, "I know it." I know it, it's on the tip of my tongue. And then she tells me, and I'm like, don't tell me because it's like lifting a heavy weight and then somebody right. helping yeah. lift it. I will not build the muscle if she tells me the answer. And so the, mm-hmm. the brain, yeah, something's ha- like you're waiting for that. And you know, it's on the tip of your tongue and it's going to come. So it's, that's what I mean, like hurting, like. I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's not so, so bad. You're, but. You're, the, the same kind of thing can happen. The, the, the main thing is to learn something quote unquote, complex, complex to you. For example, it's same with musical instruments. So musical instruments also, when you first learn to coordinate your hands 
and you also visually see the notes or you learn to remember the notes you're playing and emulate that on your instrument. That also, you know, has a quote unquote hurts, like you're doing the lifting at first it, it's you're trying to play, okay, I'm, I'm coordinating all of these, you know, visually and in my hand. At first, it, it is quite a bit of a learning curve and same with language. Now, I don't want to use the word disagree, but I want to say that language learning, yes, there are aspects of quote unquote memorization, but it is more language learning is a whole other topic. It's a whole other complex Um, Yeah. Yeah. So, but it does involve your memory, the hippocampus part, but it also involves, again, your muscles, your mouth muscles when you're speaking something and same with same musical instruments. Again, anything that, as you mentioned, hurts (laughs) or doing some kind of heavy lifting, but anything that is perceived complexity. And the reason I use the word perceived, because there are some skills that can come easier to people than others. Some people who are are naturally multi, who have privilege of growing up in a place where they've heard many languages as a kid, for them, it can be easier to pick up language when they're older versus Mm -hmm. somebody who maybe just grew up in a very white suburban neighborhood in America, say, you know, where only English is spoken. And the same with musical instruments, you know, somebody who may not have had piano or or had been exposed to playing an instrument as a kid may have a bit of a learning curve when they're older versus somebody who probably played instruments when they're a kid, but had a long gap and then decided to return back to it in middle age. So again, the thing is perceived complexity. And again, all of that does require creativity skills just because Because the way we learn something, the way I, Maria Ashna, learn something can be different than the way Zora learns something. That's also where the creativity aspect can come in. Mm -hmm. You have to figure out for you what is the best way for you to learn something or maybe how can you learn something that, as you put it, Zorab, your your brain is doing more heavy lifting? Are you going to take sign of the shortcut to learn something or are you going to challenge yourself to, okay, uh, maybe I'm going to look at it in a divergent way. How can I sort of going from, say, a five pound weight to a 10 pound weight in terms of how I'm learning something? How can I engage in that? So I think the the divergent part of it is also a factor in terms of, as you mentioned, doing sort of the heavy lifting or engaging in complexity in terms of learning the skill. Thanks so much for that explanation. Now I feel like I have a whole new vocabulary after this <laughs> session. And I, I used a lot of terms there, but. Yeah, no, it's good. I mean, perfect. I, my brain is feeling bigger now. Magdalena has a question for us. Go ahead. Uh, yes, I would like to ask you what's your opinion about, for example, people who are older, mm-hmm. uh, let me say when they are not working anymore and their brain is going in a declining way, maybe 70, 80 years old, maybe they even cannot live on their own anymore. They have to be in these uh, communities for old people or they have to be under control and so on. What is better? Because I don't see if somebody wants to paint, I don't see that this is something that you can train your brain in comparison to learning a new language, for example. What would you suggest for these people to do something against brain aging, but they would like to maybe more to paint than to learn something. What is better for for your brain to be trained well? They would enjoy more in painting, but they would maybe, uh, this is uh, maybe something that would not uh, be the right way to train their their brain, because I don't really see that to be, um, let me say, to paint, that it helps 
for your brain against aging or whatever. Maybe if you are um, a musician, it's different because you have to learn the notes and everything. You, you have to be concentrating, concentrated. But when you are painting, you can do whatever. You know, you're just having a great time. You are enjoying every minute in this painting. What are you doing? I mean, what, what would you say? Because this is interesting thing, uh, how to organize something for people who are getting older and maybe could have a dementia or whatever in the nearest future. So I think there are two parts to your question. And I want to I wanna respond to the first, I guess the second and first part where you mentioned that painting is not the same as learning language or playing music, I have to respectfully disagree with you because for music, even when people play music, whatever it is, they can just strum the guitar. I'm using guitar as an example, but they can just strum the guitar. They can just run their fingers across the piano and they can have a good time. They may not necessarily learn the same with painting. Conversely, they can either just take a brush and do a stroke or they can actually use star drawing shapes and models. You know, that's also a learning process that can be just as challenging, just as complex as learning a musical instrument. But again, to address sort of the first part of the question when you started, there actually have been correlations between people who retire, you know, they retire, and then there seems to be some kind of correlation between having a, a some kind of a cognitive decline, just because when they used to work, they were engaged in something, they were keeping their brains active. And people who after they retire, they're not doing something similar They're if they're just sitting in front of the couch and vegetating. Yeah, I mean, that can make sense that there's some kind of decline possibly, possibly happening because of that. Now, recommendation wise, again, as I mentioned before, there is no one specific activity for everybody. Now, there actually used to be, I think it's, this still exists in Los Angeles. Uh, it was called the Senior Artists Colony, where sort of a older persons, I wouldn't call it a retirement home, but sort of a community where people, older people who are retired, they're living there. I believe that they engaged in playwriting, and then they put on plays. Then somebody took a cognitive test of them before doing this, and then they did a cognitive test after they engaged in this experiment, experiment, quote unquote, I put it experiment, quote unquote, because I wouldn't, I think it's an awesome thing that they did. And they found that their cognitive functions, or at least on the test, it improved. So again, that's an example of that community where they engaged in something creative. They weren't necessarily to us, it may not seem like it was a huge complex activity. It was a creative activity. They were having a good time, but they noticed benefits. I would suggest people who retire, a lot of people after they retire, they they take a part-time job in something that they love, or they volunteer. A lot of people volunteer, volunteer in something that they feel passionate about. And you see those older people, they're still taken strong. So again, there isn't any one size approach. There's all kinds of solutions to this. It's all kind of things that people can do, people in terms of what they want to do. But the important thing is it has to be something that they enjoy. If a person who retires goes to volunteer at a food bank, but they're not really passionate about food banks. They're more passionate about animals. I think it would serve that person better if they volunteered at an animal shelter than a food bank. It really is dependent on what that person is passionate about and what, what brings them joy. 
We should do something what we love. I asked, I mean, the example of painting was because I'm also a painter in my free time. <laughs> and when I will be older, let me say, that means it's better that I paint that then I do something else to do something what you enjoy. Because I was always thinking maybe your brain just become lazy if you do such a things that you should do something more concrete, more, no. let me say, technical or whatever that you Not have to think yeah, about. And, it. Yeah. And you know what? The fact that you are a painter, obviously, that's why painting to you, it feels effortless to you because you are a painter. To maybe Zora and, and everybody else, it might not be He's as a dancer. <laughs> yeah, they might think, oh my God, how do I hold what, what? There's so many different brushes. There's what? There's acrylic and watercolor. Which one should I use? For them, it, it's a complex activity, activity. But the thing is, I say, if you already dance, if you already paint, keep doing it. I really don't think your brain will quote unquote get lazy. Collapse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't think so because you're already already engaging in these activities. You're probably already steps ahead. And so I don't think our brain is very different than the rest of our body in many ways. You know, our brain is, it's not like that where you keep um, sure, if you keep drawing flowers all the time, maybe, you know, if that's what you paint every day, maybe not paint flowers every day, but maybe draw a different kind of a flower. It seems there's a difference between what I hear from Magdalena is what's creative and yeah. relaxing and maybe not challenging versus learning something. Yes, exactly. But I think my maybe guess, I didn't uh, ask the right way, but that, that's no, what you asked perfect yeah. questions. I think the thing is these topics, they're all we 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 really want to parcelate them, silo them, but the thing is they're all connected. They really are all connected. That's also another thing maybe I should have mentioned that we need to see these things as all encompassing. It's not a simple as gonna dial up creativity or, or dial down creativity, but dial up technical. It's all together. It's all because in mesh. You imagine you're, you're painting or I'm dancing and you're older and you would probably be bored doing the same thing over and over again that you'd want to challenge and you'll you'll want to master something maybe master that flower or maybe you have to do it a hundred times but you're probably using your creative mind and learning something because you got to take it to the next level is you're you enjoy it you're passionate about it and you I think eventually you would be learning because through the creativity that's my guess I don't have any evidence on that but <laughs> that's to me something that would keep you engaged I'm gonna have to let you go soon so I wanted to ask if Hanya or Daniela or anyone else has questions for Maria before we go or comments um, maybe you have grandparents or parents or people who you see have creative minds or you think that they should be a little bit more creative it'd be great to to hear some of your thoughts and if not then I have to <laughs> I'm gonna have to ask you one more question yeah, no, I think the, the point is to keep your mind active because I, to me, it seems like a muscle. And if it's, a, if it's a muscle, then if we don't, I hate to say, you know, you just said, I hate to say, if you don't use it, you lose it. But well, I, I don't want to, our brain is actually fat and water, but it's a very, it's a beautiful combination. It's so much more complex than just a muscle. And all of these things that are happening in our brain, whether it's Alzheimer's or Parkinson's or mental illness, it's just fascinating. And for me, exciting 
to a lot of things about the brain that are still uncharted. It's almost like neuroscientists and researchers were were sort of Lewis and Clark. We're embarking on this journey. There's still so much to learn, but what I can tell you is approaching the brain like we approach anything else. I don't think it'll it'll help us unravel its complexities because it is something completely it really is different it is so much more than a muscle it's so much more but of course I know that for us mere mortal humans to understand how complex the brain is we do need to sort of break it down I guess in how to best keep ourselves engaged how to best and really I guess parcelate these very cellular level processes uh, when we are dancing or painting or learning a language. But mm-hmm. all of these are far more complex, but beautiful. I want to send out that message as a takeaway point. Yes, there's an, um, we have Hanya who's talking about problem solving and being creative. And I have to ask you about this because I was giving a talk on the brain myself in Hong Kong, one of my classes, somebody had stopped me and they said that their parents or was it the mother, I don't remember the mother, the father, they moved him into a nursing home because they thought that was the best decision. And she had, because also she was Alzheimer, had Alzheimer's, I think it was the beginning stages and then she said once she moved her into the nursing home her cognitive decline just just went through the roof it just completely big change when she and she believes that because when she was at home she had to problem solve she had to change the light bulbs. She had to pay the bills. She had to deal with things. Whereas in the nursing home, she wasn't using her brain at all in the sense that everything was taken care of her. This is just one anecdote that I got. And I thought it was very interesting because it's, uh, it's cre- guess, creativity problem solving. Is, is this anything that you've, there's studies out there? Have you heard anything about this? This is a very complex issue because Alzheimer's right now, scientists are positing that Alzheimer's is also called diabetes three, because 80% of people who have Alzheimer's also have diabetes and diabetes, Alzheimer's can be caused because of inflammation. There's a theory out there becoming more and more credible, more research studies coming out that's confirming it. Regarding being in a nursing home, I I don't necessarily think the reason that this person's relative faced a severe cognitive decline because she wasn't, she didn't have an option to pay the bills. I think, unfortunately, after a while, people who have been diagnosed with Alzheimer's, you know, they lose their capacity to do daily living tasks like that. But on the other hand, it also depends what kind of a facility or institution or community you're in. If you're in a Alzheimer's or memory care community that is not really involved in a lot of enriching activities. And enriching activities, I wouldn't necessarily say paying the bills or anything, but just if you're just sitting there, if you're given your food and meds, it's not really an engaging and enriching activity. Yeah, so it's less about not paying the bills, but more about perhaps... The comedian and also perhaps the stage of the disease she's in. Unfortunately, Alzheimer's is at this point not reversible, sadly, which is why it is even more important, I believe, there needs to be more research, more funding um, in the science community to figure out, you know, there's no medication right now that can reverse Alzheimer's. There isn't. Maybe there can be, if we learn more about the creative pathways of the brain, perhaps learning about those creative pathways can perhaps 
help us figure out a pathway to reversing Alzheimer's. If we found out how being creative can be neuroprotective, perhaps there's hope. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's a reason why I'm so glad that you invited me to this talk, because I want to make a case for having more research on how creativity can be neuroprotective, encouraging more studies on how creativity and the brain is beneficial. Because if we're just looking at what goes wrong in the brain, instead of what is going right in the brain, we're completely excluding another big piece of the puzzle. Perhaps the answer to reversing Alzheimer's or staving off dementia completely lies in how the creative pathways of the brain work. That's amazing. I absolutely agree. More funding, more research. There's definitely, there's studies that are that are done. It's just that it's not enough, but there is a path. I think there is definitely, this is something to be investigated. We have a question um, from Danielle. What about someone diagnosed with pre-dementia? Could their cognitive decline be abated? So uh, by pre-dementia, I think, are you mentioning, say, MCA, like mild cognitive impairment or what level of uh, pre-dementia? I have no idea. That is very fancy talk that you just did. This conversation is really interesting to me because my mom, uh, unfortunately, has been diagnosed with pre-dementia. I have to say that a lot of what you guys are discussing just in the last couple minutes about sort of like the epigenetic component of it. She had a lot of uh, stressful Mm. events happen to her in the last five years and her cognitive decline just skyrocketed. So yeah. I think there's a lot to be said about, I mean, stress is the number one oh, cause of inflammation yes. everywhere. And, right? and sadly, cortisol has been shown to be damaging to the neurons in your hippocampus. You know, there is something called stress-related dementia. And again, I don't know, it's, it's a really great question that you asked. I wish I had a yes and no answer to this. I don't, if it is stress-related dementia, if for a fact, if it's stress-related dementia, you know, there can be a chance of a cognitive decline sort of staving it, but otherwise dementia, um, it's such a complex thing. It's diet, stress, prior family history. It's, it's a whole host of things. You know, yeah. there are many things that are beyond our control regarding this. Yeah, you mentioned the stress part definitely can give somebody dementia symptoms. Yeah. And I mean, even Zora, in the example that you brought up where where this person talked about their parent moved into a nursing home, there's an emotional component. I've heard that story a million times. You know, I had a friend who moved her dad into a nursing home and he passed away like two weeks later. Oh my God. It's um, interesting to see the statistics on that. And during our master's program, we learned a lot about people entering nursing homes or long-term care facilities. And it sounds like there's two different camps. There's some people who absolutely love it. They find it as a social place. They want to engage in activities. It's all organized. And some people just don't want to be caught dead in one of those places. So I think it maybe depends on your perception of what is your going into this place in the in the first place so it could be maybe a really great thing because you are engaged yeah. and people and and it's probably not for other people the, yeah it's it's also the level of your diagnosis um it depends mm-hmm. how fast your disease is progressing there's a whole host of factors 
I wish there was a one size fits all answer. There isn't.、Um, a lot of times, if people have traumatic brain injury, that can also years down the road can be a potential cause of dementia and Alzheimer's. There's all host of reasons, and that's why. I emphasize the need for delving into even more research, even more funding, because diseases like Alzheimer's and dementia don't know on day one what's going to happen to you on day ten. Really, you can speculate. You can. It's not the same for everybody,、yeah. and because of its longitudinal <clears throat> nature, I think sadly at this moment, pharmaceutical companies aren't really putting their focus on creating treatments because it takes so much time. And so you wouldn't know if a drug for Alzheimer's works until ten, twenty years from now, or if you see promising results in five years, you may see completely different results in the next five years. So we need to figure out how to sort of get over those obstacles to make sure that, despite the longitudinal nature of these diseases, that we can come up with some viable treatment options. Instead of throwing our hands up in the air and saying, "Oh well, this will we don't. This is a twenty-year disease, ten-year disease. We give up.、Yeah. We're just emphasize on giving them, you know, fruits and veggies. I mean, sure, fruits and veggies are great, but they're not gonna. If you already have Alzheimer's, it's not gonna stop you. Or Parkinson's, or any of、uh, any of those、um, neurocognitive diseases. So I'm gonna have to let you go.、Um, I'm sorry, I have to end this.、Up. It's coming up to ten o'clock at night、um, for me. And、um, Magdalena as well. And I um I do want to get your a question. I know Magdalena you sent a question earlier about sleep and the brain. Ah,、uh-huh, sorry. You know, maybe I didn't understand、uh, theme. You know what、oh. will be all about. I was thinking everything connected connected to brain. Okay, it is. But I don't know if Maria is specialized for this. But、uh, this was certainly one of the question I would like to get the answer because I am such a let me say a person having this kind I will not say problems but a specific let me say specific way of、uh, sleeping patterns. <laughs> I think I saw your question earlier asked if it if there's any negative impact if you wake up a lot and then you know go back to sleep. Correct? Was that your question? Yes. 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 Yes.、Yeah, so- uh, when I wake up, I I can't fall back to sleep again. You know, immediately maybe I need an hour or two hours, but it's too early to wake up and、uh, get up、yeah. off my bed. So I try to fall back asleep again, and I need quite some time. Okay,、yeah. maybe if I calculate all together, you know,、uh, it's enough of hours. <laughs> but I don't know what kind of impact is this. You cut your sleep in the middle. That is a great question, and you know, I don't do much stuff on sleep, but I don't. Sleep is again, you know, we always hear, oh, we need seven to eight hours or seven yeah, to nine hours、yeah. of sleep, or else we're gonna we're gonna die or something. But I was always fine with my sleep because I don't need it much. But now, when I'm deep into longevity, anti aging, and after listening to Doctor Matthew Walker. <laughs> I、uh, start thinking、uh, differently. You know, it's quite scary when you you see all these researches that it's it's not good if you don't sleep more than seven hours. Well, you know, sleep actually again, it's like the same thing of drinking eight glasses of water thing. Not all of us need to drink eight glasses of water because, again, if we're eating food or if we're drinking coffee, we're something with liquid. But I guess liquid, I should I should put a disclaimer. 
does not include alcohol. That's totally <laughs> different. Um, you know, don't get your water calories from alcohol, but it's the same thing with sleep. I don't think your, your sleep centers in your brain is controlled by something called the hypothalamus. Um, so that controls sort of your sleep wake cycles and in your inside your hypothalamus, there's another part called the suprachiasmatic nucleus. I know it's a big word, but that's one of my favorite words in neuroscience, sort of like the clock of your brain. It, it helps to, uh, it senses when light is coming in. So I don't think it's such a, you know, scary thing if you suddenly wake up, you know, and you, it takes you a while, little while to fall back asleep, as long as you get, you know, your number of sleep that you know, your number of hours of sleep. Um, I don't think the breaks would have a huge negative impact. That's just one one aspect of your life. If other aspects of your life, you are healthy, again, I don't think um, that can be an issue. Now, if you're a chronic insomniac, uh, that that can that can eventually lead to problems. Uh, but Problem yeah, but I don't think waking up and you know going back to sleep. Um, are you are you sleeping in your purple room? Or it's Sorry? just, the, are you sleeping in your purple room? You know, when you go to bed, is it in purple? No, light? no, no. Always okay. completely dark. Okay. Okay. That's good. I wanted to ask yes, you yes. about that. Yeah. I couldn't yeah. sleep like this. It has to be completely dark. <laughs> Sometimes I even have a mask on my, on my eyes because I feel better. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. There's yeah. a, have the talk um, with the sleep scientist, Amy Bender. She's amazing. And, um, I don't, you know, she does a lot of studies and, I don't know how much she knows about the brain and the effects of the brain, but I think it would be a great talk to, to ask her in terms of sleep. What she said before in terms of sleep is you generally want to fall back asleep within 15 minutes or so. And if you don't, she recommends getting out of the bed, out of the room. And I'm sure you heard this before too from other yeah. people. And then try to go to bed. One thing that works for me, like a charm, and it's a little tip. I know what happens very often when you can't go back to bed is because your mind is racing. You start thinking about things. So it's in terms of if you practice meditation and knowing how to bring your brain back to your breath, I count backwards from 100. <laughs> and, I've heard this many times. Does it work? <laughs> it looks like a charm. Most of the time I don't get to, to one. Sometimes I, I take, yeah, three or four. If my mind is racing, I'll go three, four, five rounds. I'm like, oh, is this ever going to happen? But I just keep going. Because if I start thinking about whatever it is that's bothering me or keeping me awake, yes, there's true. no chance. But it's like counting sheep. People recommend to count sheep for, for you know centuries. There's something to the counting, repetitive, it's boring stuff. And then getting your mind off of whatever it is and concentrating in the breath, breathing. Sometimes I, before I discovered this, I was breathing, inhaling deep inhales mm -hmm. and then exhales. And I would get to three or four rounds and quite fall asleep quickly, but I'm totally into counting backwards now from hundred, but just works for me so well. Cool. I will try tonight. Thank you. We'll tell you the next time. Yeah. Well, I'm going to let you guys go because for me, it's thank you so much for everything. Thank you, Maria. And thank you, Zora. I'm really always so happy when I see that you post for another Zoom meeting because it's always very interesting, always different theme so really nice anyways i'm gonna let you guys go thank Bye. you so Ciao. nice to meet you all and yeah. see you soon take care thank you so much maria for your time
Hey, did you enjoy the podcast? Don't forget to subscribe to be notified of all the new episodes and leave a review to help build the tribe. It's a small act of kindness that brings me big benefits and helps others find this amazing content. The best thing you can do is share. Sharing is caring. Statements made on this podcast have not been evaluated by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. Anything we say or products we mention are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Information provided by this podcast is not a substitute for personal medical advice and not intended to replace a one-on-one relationship with a qualified healthcare professional. It is intended as a sharing of knowledge and information from the personal research and experience of me and my guests.